Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. How's this? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. By the way, we have hearing... Wow, it's pretty loud. <laughs> Don't you think that's a little too loud? No. A little, just, a, just a little bit. Uh, we have hearing-assisted um, devices, too, um, for anybody who needs them. Anybody who would like a hearing-assisted device? You're sure? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, how's this? Uh, okay. All right. Uh, as I said a moment ago, um, I'm. Um, I just got. This inquiring mind issue, their 30th anniversary, and uh, the topic is God. And it's a really um, excellent issue. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has an article in there, and Norman Fisher has an article, and Susan Moon, and some um, very... um, scholarly uh, scientists and uh, Tibetan practitioners and Zen practitioners um, all reflecting on this topic, on this, on this word. It's a word. You know? and it's, but it's a word that means, that has so much uh, power and meaning uh, and elicits um, powerful responses, positive, negative, inspiring, suspicious, bringing up memories of childhood for most, most of us. And whether we want to or not, whether we like it or not, there is very strong conditioning that comes into play around this word. The strong conditioning that comes into play about most everything, but this particular word is a really powerful one. And I was so happy to, to see that uh, this is the topic. Um, And particularly for people who are uh, Dharma practitioners, there's often this sorting out either their past and their conditioning or their current uh, 
feelings and inspiration and uh, very um, deep, sincere connection to their uh, religion that they were raised with or that they are feeling so connected to now. And often the the question is, can I be a, a practicing whatever, Jew, Christian, Muslim, you can name it, um, and still be a, a Dharma practitioner or a Dharma student. And in our, in the Spirit Rock community, uh, we have welcomed um, people who have as primary religion another religion and have had retreats for rabbis. Sylvia Borstein has done a number of uh, retreats for rabbis and, and, and Jews. Um, and we've had retreats uh, with um, Buddhism and uh, Christianity uh, because we, we really want to honor that, that you don't have to give up your religion in order to be a Dharma practitioner. Mm. But it's first, as we explore it, good to um, look at our own conditioning. Uh, So it's not, so we see, oh, this is the way my mind holds that. And whatever the reaction to to honor it, to um, allow it, to uh, have no judgments one way or the other, and to see where in our own religious upbringing is the kernel, the gems that can be uh, used in our Dharma practice too. You probably are familiar with the analogy of a finger pointing to the moon. You know that one? The, the moon is the, is the symbol in Buddhism for enlightenment, full moon. And there's the metaphor of the finger pointing to the moon as being the whatever body of Wisdom or spiritual tradition, uh, whether it's Theravadan or Zen or Tibetan or Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, all pointing to the experience beyond description, the ineffable. However, unfortunately, people can get stuck on what's pointing to the moon. It's like somebody coming out in a full moon night and there's a finger pointing for everybody else uh, to see and somebody who comes out and looks at the finger and says, oh, that's a very beautiful finger. You know, and missing what it is that they're pointing to because there's, there's such a... Um, connection to the to the, the the packaging and the the body of teachings that are pointing but the idea is to have that deepest experience for oneself because all the the great religions of the world theistic or non-theistic have been carried on and over generations Uh, because they've inspired others in some very profound way. And it's also quite interesting and ironic that the very thing that would point us to the deepest experience and connection with life, with our most authentic yearning for um, 
profound connection with life is also the cause of so much pain and suffering and so much hatred and so much violence and so much separation. Think of how many wars, how many people have suffered because of the strange idea that one person's God is better than another person's God. My God is better than your God. It's so strange when you think about it, isn't it? And when, when you think that this is just the human mind trying to describe what is beyond the comprehension of this mind, and yet we can get so stuck in our ideas and concepts enough to kill, kill and have ongoing battles for centuries. Mm-hmm. So it's important to look at our conditioning and then maybe see beyond the conditioning. And um, I invite you to look at your own conditioning. I'll share with you a little bit of of mind uh, so you know where I'm coming from. And I I also want to say that each each of these teachings has, as I said, beautiful teachings and, and practices I was raised Jewish and I, I wasn't exposed to the mystical, esoteric, deeply profound teachings in Judaism that I actually longed for. And if I, perhaps if I had been exposed to them, you know, I'd be going to synagogue regularly now to, to pray. Uh, but I wasn't, and uh, I, as many people, went through a circuitous route through Judaism to uh, to be so moved by the, the Buddha's words and the Buddha's teachings. And even with Buddhism, I don't think of Buddhism as a religion. Uh, the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. The ism came afterwards. The Buddha just said, here's a way to wake up. And I would imagine that you could say the same thing about Jesus. Jesus didn't teach Christianity, or Muhammad didn't teach Islam. They were all inspired by something very profound and and touched them. Uh, And when I was growing up, I was raised, as I said, Jewish, and perhaps you can relate to a very deep longing that I had that made me want to go to a congregation. It was called Junior Congregation when I was, when I was uh, a boy. And we go uh, every Saturday. I'd go with my friends to services and... Um, I went through to Hebrew school and there was something in me that was so longing to be inspired. I remember at one one point uh, when I was young, I must have been about oh, 10 or 11 years old or so, and my, my family um, was visiting my grandparents down in Miami. They had moved down to Florida and... I said to my uh, my father on Friday night, I said, tomorrow is Saturday and I really, I want to go to temple. I need to go to temple. And my father, who ended up being very active in the Jewish center later on in, uh, uh, in subsequent years, he drove me to temple, dropped me off, and I went into services and then he picked me up and brought me home. And I always kind of remember that so vividly because it reminds me how much I wanted 
some connection to God. But um, then after I was bar mitzvahed, uh, I turned away from it. I realized, it was like they said, okay, today you are a man. And I didn't feel like a man. I was just 13, as confused as I was the, the weeks before and the years before. I didn't feel like a man, but I also knew this, or I felt that this idea of, that I was brought up with in Judaism of um, what came down to me as the chosen people didn't make sense to me because why would God choose one people over another? Um, Why would there be so much persecution if God could create beauty? And why did he create so much um, evil in the world? And why couldn't everybody see what the Jews saw? Why was it just a small fraction? He could have set up the game a little differently, I thought. So um, it, was, it was kind of confusing. And besides that, the God that I grew up with in my mind, I remembered having this big picture Bible book. You ever have a... How many kids, when you, how many people here when you were kids had a, a picture Bible book? Well, in my picture Bible book, God was a guy, a very strong, scary-looking guy with a beard, big beard, very impressive-looking, with a book in his hand and uh, some writing implement in the other hand. And uh, he was um, arbitrary. Mm, Oh, you're going to have a good day, and you're not, at least in my mind. And he was jealous. That made no sense to me. How could God be jealous? He's God. What else do you need, right? (laughs) Vengeful. And um, instead of putting the love of God in me, it put the fear of God in me. And that's an expression that we use. Wow, put the fear of God in you. And then when you look at the, at least the Judeo-Christian story of original sin, that we somehow blew it at the very beginning and we were kicked out of paradise, and if we somehow were good enough, we could repent and maybe be forgiven. Um, It's an archetype that doesn't lend to a whole lot of safety and self-confidence. And I remember uh, some years later, this is maybe, uh, oh, 15 or so years ago, 15, 20 years ago, um, I was leading a retreat up in, um, in Canada and it happened to be over um, Passover. And it was, uh, there was some, uh, it was a, a non-residential retreat. And at the, uh, in the evening on Passover, we went back to uh, my friend's house, Heather Martin, one of the teachers at, at Spirit Rock. And since it was Passover, we, I wanted to honor the Passover um, holiday, which you know, I would do, we'd do Passover, and we'd do, I, I still light Hanukkah candles. You know, when Adam was around, we'd, we'd light Hanukkah candles. And I'd like to keep up some tradition but we read to honor Passover, we read from Exodus and the uh, in, in Passover, you know the, the, the 10th plague is the is God passing over the house of the uh, of the Jewish families 
and of the non-Jewish families would smite the firstborn of all the non-Jews. And we read, I, I was thinking about uh, bringing a Bible here, but um, just didn't get into it. But we read it, as we read it, it was quite amazing, the um, hard hardness of the God that I was reading about, where what particularly blew my mind was after each plague, God said, you're going to win this thing. Don't worry about it, Moses. And each time there would be a plague, and then Moses would say, okay, I think, I think uh, things are looking good. And God said, wait, I'm going to harden, because the Pharaoh's heart softened. And then God said, I'm going to harden it again and give another plague. And each time they went through this where the Pharaoh's heart was really shaken, locusts and frogs and you know all of these things, we're going to lay it on them and I'll harden their heart, his heart one more time. Ten times. And I said, gosh, no wonder I had such a hard time with this being inspired by God. So, and I say this with, again, tremendous respect for my heritage, for the Jewish heritage, and uh, so many good things that I received from it, and that I have respect for every, every religious heritage. But that story stuck with me in a way that um, I just knew that was not going to be uh, my calling. And like I said, I wasn't exposed to the, to the deeper teachings, unfortunately. But in Judaism, the word God, if you're, um, if you're a religious Jew, Orthodox Jew, you don't write the word God Right. If you were writing it in English, you write it G dash D, because it's so it's pointing to such a holy source that it is. It's the way I understand it: a placeholder, a word that is a placeholder for that which cannot be named. Now, that which cannot be named is very different than the guy with the book and the beard saying, you're going to have a good day, and you're not. And when I came to Buddhism, one of the things that um, I was struck with, uh, the teachings of the Buddha called the Four Imponderables, where the Buddha said, if you try to think too deeply about these things, you'll go crazy. Okay? Four Imponderables. One is uh, the range of a Buddha mind, what a Buddha can understand. It's, it's just, unless you're there, you, don't, you, you can't imagine. Another is the range of a mind in the highest states of concentration and absorption. Again, you can't really communicate it. You can't really figure it out. A third is the intricacies of karma, how cause and effect works, how this has led to this. And if you relate to past lives or whatever, why one thing occurs and the causes that uh, that led to that. He said, you try to think about karma too much, you go crazy. And the fourth, which is usually listed as the first, but I wanted to put it this way, is how it all started. How this whole physical reality 
and life as we know it, how it began. Now, you might say, oh, well, I know how it began. Now we know how it began. It began 13.7 billion years ago with one big bang. Okay, if that is a satisfying answer for you, then um, very nice. For me, that, that might be so, but it doesn't quite do it. Where did that come from? Where did the singularity, where did the Big Bang come from? And what was around 13.8 billion years ago? So it's just pointing to something that is beyond our comprehension. So that kind of put my mind at rest trying to figure anything out. But another aspect of Buddhism that that appealed to me right off the bat was that instead of original sin, there is this notion of you're already pure. You're already the divine. There's just obscurations getting in the way. But when you see who you really are, this is good news. It's not like, oh, original sin underneath there. But more, oh, there's a Buddha inside. Or as the teachings of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is right within you. And these are also teachings in Judaism too, but I, as I said, wasn't exposed to them. And beyond the, the limited sense of self in Buddhism, there is this basic understanding of everything being dependent on everything else. Dependent co-arising or dependent origination where everything is coming out of causes and conditions and can't be separated out from anything else. And in that not separating out, there's a perfection in it all. Everything belongs. Everything belongs. And for me, this sense of perfection, of this mysterious balance in this physical plane. We see how if something is taken out of balance, the chaos that it causes, how it's all come together in such amazing perfection and harmony. When you really reflect on that, this just goes beyond the mind's comprehension. And for me, it opens up to this place of awe and wonder and uh, a goodness, uh, a rightness in it all. You know, I, I, I love this line. I've mentioned it here before. Einstein's Uh, Einstein's line, he says, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask themselves is, is the universe friendly or not? And if you have a sense of the universe or life being friendly, then there's a whole different relationship that you have as you walk through life. If you have the fear of God or the unfriendliness, then that moves you through in a very different way. And for me, I somehow have been so blessed to to feel that goodness and that friendliness. And we all yearn for it. We all yearn for some kind of connection to something higher than ourselves. 
And we might think that Buddhism uh, is a is something that is that is more cerebral that doesn't open us up to something beyond ourselves. But this would be a very great misunderstanding. And in fact, looking for in fact um, to understand this is to really see that one of the central principles of Buddhism is devotion. That although when Buddhism has has come to the West, we've kind of minimized the trappings a bit because it might have seemed a little bit too too foreign. But you go into um, uh, a a Thai uh, meditation center or a Dharma center, and people are bowing down all over the place. Jack, when Jack Winfield went to, uh, was a monk in Thailand, he said that the, the basic principle was, if it moves, you bow. <laughs> and that devotion is so uh, intrinsic to Dharma practice um, that that's what keeps the juice going. We need something greater than ourselves to move past our ego and to um, touch us in a, in a very heartful way. So the, the beautiful thing about exploring this is how can we get in touch with that devotion that perhaps we felt or maybe we lost or maybe we feel now in another in another tradition, how can we feel that and get in touch with that in our own Dharma practice? This is Jnana Tara, one of the great translators of, of um, the Pali Canon, who was uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's mentor. Uh, and he wrote this essay called Devotion in Buddhism. He says... Um, is it? it would be a mistake to conclude that the Buddha disparaged a reverential and devotional attitude of mind when it is the natural outflow of a true understanding and a deep admiration of what is great and noble. It would be a grievous error to believe that the seeing of the Dhamma is identical with a mere intellectual appreciation and purely conceptual grasp of the doctrine. Such a one-sided abstract approach to the very concrete message of the Buddha all too often leads to intellectual smugness. In its barrenness, it will certainly not be a substitute for the strong and enlivening impulse imparted by a deep-felt devotion to what is known as what is known as great, noble, and exemplary devotion is an, being a facet and natural accompaniment of confidence is a necessary factor in balancing all the faculties. A one-sided development of the intellectual faculties often tends to turn around in circles endlessly without being able to effect a breakthrough. So we need something to be devoted to. Whether you call it the devotion to God or to the Dharma. You know, the Buddha, Buddhism is sometimes called, by the way, um, the path with no railings. Because you can't lean on something out there, some creator being out there. However, it's a path that devotion is a very essential quality of the heart. And it's important to get in touch with how that expresses itself in our own practice. I'll share a story. Some of you have heard this, but it's, uh, I haven't shared it in a while, and it's relevant, and a number haven't, where I got in touch with my own connection of devotion in Dharma practice around this issue of God. Many years ago, I was like 1970, 
seven, uh, I was completely into the, the Dharma teachings and went back to my home in New York where there's nobody, nobody that was practicing with me at the time. But I uh, was um, very intrigued by a scene that Ramdas, who wrote Be Here Now, a book that had changed my life, was, was leading in New York. And I had come to the Dharma through Be Here Now and through a very deep devotional feeling when I read that book. But I had kind of then gotten into Buddhist practice and it seemed like devotion seemed a bit sloppy to me by that point. But I wanted to practice with with Ram Dass in this small scene that he was having. So I I went to interview with him and um, and I said, you know, I've gotten very much into uh, uh, Buddha Dharma and yet I'm I'm really drawn to uh, to what what you have to share. Can I practice with you? And we talked for a while and he said, well, I want to ask you something. Um, how do you feel about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I said, I like Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I love Jesus, but I like him. You know, just very beautiful teachings. And he said, well, but you don't love Jesus. I, I said, I don't think the way you would like me to love Jesus. He said, okay, um, what about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? I said, I like Krishna. <laughs> Just expression of the divine and celebration and, and uh, aliveness. Um, but I don't know if I love Krishna. And then he said, uh, oh, well, how about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, Ramdas, you know, I was raised Jewish, and like I just said to you, I thought of God as this kind of scary male who was going to say you're going to have a good day and you're going to have not as good a day. And so I don't know if I loved God, but... Um, when I think of the word God these days, I think in terms of the Dharma, of just the perfection of everything. And I don't know how it all fits together, but uh, it touches me. And he said, well, do you love the Dharma? And that one, without any hesitation, I said, oh yeah, absolutely. He said, you're sure? I said, yeah. I love, I love the Dharma. And he said, well, did you ever tell the Dharma that you loved it? <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, well, go ahead. Why don't, you, why don't you try that? I said, what do you mean? He said, just say, tell the Dharma you love it. And I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, I'll say it with you. Good. You just say, I love you, Dharma, and I'll say it with you. And I felt like a complete jerk, but there I was. I said, okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And we went back and forth like that about three or four times until one time I actually felt it. And I said... I love you, Dharma. And when I felt it, it was like tears, tears started coming down my cheeks. At which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> and it was a, a really important moment because I had been so busy practicing the pristine clarity of seeing things clearly, that I had missed out on the very fact that I wanted to study with him was that I longed for that juice. I longed for that richness. And I remembered how much I loved 
the Dharma, how much I love the truth. And I think it's very important that we all stay connected to that. There's something that brought you here. There's something that makes you want to sit down and be still and take a a humbling look at your mind, even when it's not particularly fun. There's something that makes you want to go on retreat if you've done a retreat, which, you know, is not, you know, a a vacation in in Hawaii, Um, but it can be something so profound and, and touching you to the core of the truth that once you hear that call, you can't ignore it. Once, once it's, it's touched you deeply, you can't pretend. And to even be moved to hear that call, what is it that's calling you? It's like life, or you could say God, or whatever you call it, is just calling to hear itself through you. And the more we can get in touch with how much we love whatever that word God is pointing to, whether you think of it as truth or love or mystery, a word that I usually come down to, to hear that call and to let it move you, inspire you, juice you to see the, the beauty of things and the amazement of things. This is what gives our, our practice life and juice. And sometimes we have to just even get it vicariously from others, just seeing how much somebody else loves the truth. When uh, I sat a retreat a number of years ago at at Spirit Rock, I was sitting for the month of March, and I remember uh, I used to come into into the hall in the middle of the night. It was my favorite time, and nobody was around. And I'd go into the hall and I'd just be by myself. And then some, there was this young woman who started coming at the, at the same time. And I'd notice that I'd feel somebody else around and um, keep my eyes closed. And then after a few nights, I just wanted to know who this person was because I could hear something happening up front in the room. And so there it was, just the two of us. And I opened my eyes, and there was this young woman who lit a candle and just reverentially sitting in front of the Buddha and Prajnaparamita and praying. Not, it was saying her, I would imagine, her refuges. But she said it, with such a purity of heart. It so touched me, and again, tear coming down my eyes, and I said, that's what, that's what I, I need to access. And she became like my doorway to remembering how much I, I've loved the Dharma. So we can just see it from others and feel their own reverence. When I was, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, um, for about a year, the one thing, I had two vinyl albums that I played over and over. One was Doc Watson, this really amazing guitarist, and the other was this another amazing guitarist, Reverend Gary Davis. Anybody know Reverend Gary Davis here? You can just download some Reverend Gary Davis songs. I still listen to him a lot. But for a year, I would listen. Not only was he an amazing guitarist, blind Reverend Gary Davis, but he was, uh, 
he sung devotional songs to God. You know, a little bit, a little more faith in Jesus. You know, pure religion. And I just kept on playing him over and over because I wanted what he had. I wanted to love God that same way. And I kind of got, got it through him. And I'd sing along with him, and there I was singing to the glory of God. And it felt so good. So I, before we, I'll just conclude, but I just want to ask you perhaps to uh, close your eyes for a moment. And um, get in touch with um, how you relate to the word God. And whatever your response is, absolutely fine. Whether it's inspiring or off-putting or whatever. How do you relate to that word God? What does it mean to you? And how can you hold it or see the finger that that word is pointing to the moon? What inspires you that that word represents? And whether you think of it as the word God or the Dharma, or whatever word does it for you, get in touch with the juice that moves you. What can you translate that word into if that word doesn't open your heart. And get in touch for a moment with to whatever extent you love what that is pointing to. And now, uh, I I invite you perhaps to to turn to one or two people near you and just share your own reactions, responses to that word and what it points to for you, whatever came up for you in that reflection, and then we'll come back as as a group, just for about five minutes or so, five or six minutes. Okay.
Yeah, just another minute or so. Sorry, I didn't give you more time to uh, get into it. It's hard to resolve God in five minutes. So uh, uh, hopefully this will be the... You did? Oh, good. What's the answer? <laughs> it is. <laughs> 42, yeah. That's it. That is the answer. Right. <laughs> uh, but hopefully it can uh, stimulate you into just holding that word in a way that um, that allows your heart to open and feel a kinship with everybody who is inspired by that word. It's just a word. It's a very powerful pointer. Words are very profound. As the Bible says, in the beginning was the word... And the word was God. Huh. It's just a word, and yet it points to something very rich and alive. And the more you can go beyond whatever conditioning to touch that place, 
then it enriches and moves your practice in a whole other way so you can feel a devotion to the Dharma, a devotion to the truth, a love of life, a love of the mystery without trying to figure it out or come to any kind kind of conclusions, but really to surrender the linear thinking mind that tries to get a handle on things. So we'll just uh, close with a with a short loving kindness. And again, just get in touch with how much you love the truth. Or you yearn for connection. And maybe for a moment get in touch with how much life loves you and wants you to exist and flourish and be aligned with goodness and harmony. How much you are loved by life and how much that life is loving right through you, loving itself. and wish yourself well. May I connect with all the goodness inside and share this love well. May I see through my figuring out mind and get in touch with a heart that can let go and just open with wonder and awe. May I awaken to the highest truth and happiness. And may I share any goodness that I develop within myself with all beings everywhere may all come to the highest peace and freedom. May all benefit from our coming here together. kind attention. See you next week. Come and sit with us on Saturday. It's going to be good. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.